Hi, ladies. Thank you for being leaders in your Bible study groups. Get your green highlighter and green pen so that you can underline some important statements and make notes to help you lead ladies in a meaningful discussion of God's Word. Let's delight in studying and sharing the precious words of the Lord to us. This is the Leader's Guide for John 14 through 16, the Abide in Me workbook. I will be going over lessons 11 and 12. I'm starting on page 59. And the title of this lesson is Bad News. That's something we really never want, but I'm so thankful to have Jesus' words of instruction. Um, um, highlight in the first two paragraphs there, Jesus made the most personal, intimate declarations. And then skip to the next um, paragraph. But then the world and its hate burst into that moment. Jesus was not surprised about this, and neither should we be. So you can turn the page and go to the top of page 60. And just for a reminder, mention that the word world is used by Jesus, and this is the Greek word cosmos, and it refers to the unbelieving world of mankind. So just, just a reminder about that. With this next set of exercises, and kind of for the rest of the page, I recommend you start going, let, let the ladies know you're going to go around the circle, and um, one person per statement can uh, read how they filled in the blanks. So you can start with anybody, but this is just time management and to get the conversation flowing at the beginning. So let's start with the truths that Jesus laid out. What are the cold, hard facts that Jesus stated in the following verses? What did he say in John 15, 18? The world hated Jesus first, and then it hates me. Uh, John 15, 19, the world hates you and me because I am not of this world, but I'm chosen out of the world by Jesus. So I'm not of the world. John 15, 20, they persecuted Jesus, therefore they will also persecute me. John 15, 21, they will do these things because they don't know the one who sent Jesus. You don't have to rush through those. There may not be any conversation, but it's possible that there may be a little comment that uh, somebody wants to pop up with after um, any or one of those statements. So that is the first part of the bad news. And then we looked at two different groups because there were some who did respect and believe Jesus, and there were others who rejected them. So we're going to look at those two groups first. And we'll just keep going around the circle. So you can ask, who believed in Jesus in this first verse, Matthew 9, 27 through 28? And the next person in the circle. Um, it was two blind men. They followed Jesus. They called him son of David. They asked for mercy. And they said they believed that he was able to. Jesus said, Are you, do you believe I'm able to do this? And they said yes. Um, this is not explained, but they had asked for mercy. So if we just take what's in the verses right there, they believed he was able to show and give mercy. And um, 
We know he healed them. <clears throat> Who else believed Jesus? In number two, Matthew 16, 13 through 16, we see that his disciples believed who he was. Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And who else believed Jesus? Number three, John 1, 49 and 50. This is Nathaniel, and he called him rabbi, and he said, you are the son of God. That so wonderful, right? And he said, you are the king of Israel. So Nathaniel believed Jesus. And in uh, the fourth one, John 4, 40-42, who believed Jesus here? This is about the Samaritans. And Jesus had been with the woman at the well. The Samaritans met him. They uh, urged Jesus to stay with, him, with them. Many believed because of his words. They heard Jesus and they believed him um, and what he said. And they said, we know this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. And that is just a magnificent statement that the Samaritans made. <clears throat> and then who rejected Jesus? These are... Um, similar in the groups here, the religious leadership, but there are some different sets and um, aspects of the people that are included that I will highlight. So in Mark 11 and 11, 18, it's the scribes and the chief priests. So this one definitely, um, that's what the groups is together. Scribes and chief priests sought how they would destroy Jesus, for they feared him, for all the people were astonished at his teaching. In Mark, who rejected Jesus, here we have the high priest, and there were, it, Jesus was on trial, and there were a lot of people around him. So at the end, we see they all condemned him to death. But the high priest asked Jesus, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. So, he heard it for himself right then and there. And the high priest did not believe him. He called it blasphemy. And then the next phrase after that says, they all condemned him to death. So this is everybody that's with the high priest. So the high priest and the other priests that were around. In the third passage, Luke 11, 53 and 54, who rejected Jesus? Here we have the scribes and Pharisees. We haven't actually mentioned them yet. They assailed him. They cross-examined him, seeking to catch him in his words that they might accuse him. So they were strategizing and plotting and really looking to trip him up. And in number four, John 19, 14 through 15, who do we see rejecting Jesus? The Jews as a whole group are identified here. The Jews cried out, so the people, away with him, crucify him. And then we also see that the chief priests, uh, a group of them, not, not just the one high priest, but uh, all the priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So we see, um, you know, all of Israel, basically, the leadership of Israel, the religious leadership of Israel, because that's who the leadership was, uh, rejecting Jesus. Now, let's talk about this next question, and anybody can share. You can love to hear more than one person share. Let's talk about this. So, leaders, ask this question and then wait. 
What does your perspective need to be regarding the negative reaction that some people will have toward you as you live according to Jesus' commands and example? So you're just going to wait a minute and let people read what they've written on the page and get ready to talk about it. But we're looking at how we uh, expect persecution. So my answer was that my perspective needs to be just what Jesus said. Uh, I need to know that my association, my commitment, my identification with Jesus uh, will they will hate that, and they'll hate me because of my unit, my union, my relationship with Jesus. That I represent Him, I agree with what He says, with who He is. They won't like that, so I'm not supposed to be surprised. And um, I did write this little note that my perspective is: if I am to be persecuted. And hated, I want it to be because I'm living biblically and not because of sin. I don't want to be hated and persecuted and attacked because of sin, something that I'm doing wrong, or something else that somebody just doesn't like in the world. Um, you know, if if I say blue and they say, uh, and they say, yellow, then um, I don't want it just to be something generic. I want to be identified with Jesus and um, living as he commanded. So you'll take some time to talk about that. And then under the box, I've written this big question in green to um, as a transition. What else did Jesus explain to us? Ask and then ask one person to read these two fill-in-the-blank verses, John 15, 22, and 23 and 24. So we'll just have somebody read that basically paragraph right there. Jesus said, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also, if I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. The next question is at the bottom of the page, and you can say this to the ladies. The next questions are summary questions based on what we've been looking at. So, to whom did Jesus come and speak? Just ask the question. He came to his people, he came to the Jews, he came to the Jewish leadership. If they just say Jews, that's right. Um, you might uh, emphasize that he did speak. I mean, he spoke to everybody. All the Jews had a chance. All of his people. And I don't mean 100% of the population, but everybody representing the full population and in every aspect of leadership. Okay, <laughs> you don't have to draw that out in a long way, but also, why did the Jews then have no excuse for their sin? They saw the works of Jesus, and he said that no one else had done those works. He did things that no one else did, the miracles. 
And then what was their reaction to Jesus? They hated him and hated the Father. Those are not hard questions. They're not long discussion questions. Um, but it's just a summary of everything. It is still surprising to me and sad every time I look at this. And we know that God is sovereign over everything and this was his part of his plan. But just keep in mind, as you're sharing Jesus with people today, they saw Jesus firsthand. They saw his miracles firsthand. They were reading the Old Testament scriptures for themselves. Jesus quoted the Old Testament scriptures, and they still did not believe him. So um, evidence, proof, when it's laid out right in front of you or someone, is not necessarily going to lead them to believe Jesus because um, God's grace is going to work and a person's faith is going to work. Grace and faith have to happen. Oh, that was just a side note. So I'm on page 62 and under the box, I don't think you need to read the box unless something just really want, unless you want to say something about that. Under the box, the last sentence says that they, the Jews, would be held accountable for their rejection of Jesus. So we're still looking at the Jews' rejection of Jesus. And leaders, you just need to read this as a transition to what's going on in the middle of this page. The Jews would be held accountable for their rejection of Jesus. Jesus grieved over the sin of the Jews, knowing what would come as a consequence. Then just ask the next question. What did he say would happen according to Matthew 23? 37 through39. Jesus wanted to gather Jerusalem to himself as a hen gathers her chicks, but they were not willing to be gathered to him, to receive him, be saved by him. And he said their house would be made desolate, and he said they would see him no more until they say, "Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord." That's all. There's a lot of information in there. Um, we really don't have time to talk about all the details that are being expressed through those, uh, the prophecy that Jesus gives. But I have summarized it on the next page, and he's saying that Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. Okay. What would happen according to Luke 19, 41 through 44? This is a little bit more about the destruction. Jesus said, The enemies would build an embankment. They would surround and close in on every side and level the city of Jerusalem with their children and people in it. And they would not leave one stone upon the another. And this would happen because they didn't know the time of their visitation. They didn't recognize when Jesus came to them. And um, again, that is explained more and summarized on the next page in all of my italics. What was the very sad truth that Jesus declared in John 15, 25? He said, this all happened, the rejection happened to fulfill the word written in their law, which says, they hated me without cause. So that 
is a quote from Psalm 35. You can mention that as a transition to the prophecy. So there was prophecy. He quoted it from Psalm 35. And there's prophecy in Isaiah. So what in Isaiah 53, 3 through 9, tells us about what Jesus would suffer? Note that which relates to what we've been studying. I did not write down every single thing that's in those verses. Someone may have. I know that it is a, a summary. I focused on things that it seemed like we've been talking about. He was despised, rejected. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief because he was rejected. Um, they argued against him. What, what a grief that they didn't believe him. Um, he was not esteemed. And I don't know which verse it is, but it says, We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Verse 7 says he was oppressed, afflicted. He didn't open his mouth. So when they were arguing, he told the truth and he made legitimate um, truth uh, statements. But he didn't. He wasn't combative, argumentative, defensive in a, um, a personal <laughs> way. I'm just thinking of... His mission and, uh, you know, he always confronted the Pharisees and those who didn't believe him, those who tried to set him up. He gave them clear truth. But he just didn't get in a knockdown, drag out fight defending his position. That's kind of what I'm thinking. Um, in verse 8, it says, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Oppression and judgment. It was false judgment against him too. And then in verse 9, and this is a really key one we need and uh, to emphasize. He did no violence. There was no deceit in his mouth. So make sure that you note that because that's kind of your launching pad for the top of page 63. Isaiah prophesied no violence or deceit would be found in Jesus and what do we see was acknowledged about Jesus by Pontius Pilate and Herod? So you can ask the question, just wait for somebody to answer. Um, from Luke 23. They found no grounds to charge him with what he had been accused of. And um, that was Pilate. And then Herod, I don't know if these words were in his mouth, but Herod found clearly he did nothing to deserve death. No grounds, nothing to deserve death. And then what was he, what was acknowledged about Jesus by the criminal on the cross? He said, this man has done nothing wrong. And what was acknowledged about Jesus by the Roman officer, the centurion at the cross? He was glorifying God and he said, certainly this man was innocent. Some translations say righteous and that is actually the the word that was used, he was righteous. He did nothing wrong. He, innocent, what a beautiful word that is. That just, we know what that means. There was nothing to accuse him of. He never did anything wrong. There was no sin in him. And we praise Jesus for that. 
In the second italicized paragraph, this is a summary that you could read from what we've been talking about. Because the Jewish leaders, chief priests, scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, rejected Jesus, they led the people to reject him as well. All Israel went astray and sinned against the Lord and the Lord's Messiah. And that's still happening today. The Jewish leadership still leads the Jewish people astray. So we had to exercise an encouragement to pray for any Jews that the Lord brings to mind. And I hope that you are praying for Jewish friends. And then you can end this lesson by the reminder of saying, let us obey Jesus and be those of Psalm 35 who rejoice in the Lord even in the hard times of being persecuted for his namesake. You don't have to read Psalm 35 there, but bring that lesson to a close. And then we'll go to lesson 12 on page 64. Connecting back to the lesson we just had, we've had bad news, but we're to do good works anyway. I mean, even with what we've heard will come, we are to do good works. In that first paragraph, I have added these words, we will be, and then in the middle, despised and rejected. We will be despised and rejected. Jesus has told us this will happen and what we're to think about it. He's also told us how to respond. So that's getting you ready to ask the first question on the page. What did Jesus tell us to do in Matthew 5, 11 through 16? This is how we're to respond. Um, Know that we're blessed when we're persecuted. Rejoice and be glad. Know that our reward in heaven is great. The reward is, is in heaven, not on earth. We are to be the salt of the earth and be the light of the world. Don't hide it. We are to let the light of Jesus so shine that others see our good works and glorify God, our Father in heaven. And then I ask the question, how are we supposed to do that? Jesus didn't intend for us to handle it on our own alone. And this is a key concept of Jesus' message to his disciples. This is the key concept of this lesson. Um, You can write this little phrase in. We are focusing on good works done in us by the Holy Spirit. So we're um, focusing much more on the Holy Spirit in this verse, uh, this lesson. So go to the first question and just um, ask the question, but then we're going to break it down into these um, three things. So what three things does Jesus reveal about the Holy Spirit in John 15, 26? First ask, what does he reveal about his titles? What are his titles in these verses? I have that he's the advocate, the spirit of truth. Others may want to add the different translations that are given for the word advocate, helper, counselor. That's, that's that Greek word paraclete. What about the second thing? What does Jesus reveal about the origin of the Holy Spirit? He said he proceeds from the Father. Um, uh, God the Father sent his Spirit. 
And then what about the third thing? What did Jesus reveal about the work of the Holy Spirit? Well, in this particular verse, he says that the Holy Spirit bears witness about Jesus. And I also have in parentheses, he comes to us. So you could see, see kind of maybe see a, a work of the Spirit in that he actually came to earth to dwell in us. That's his role. Next question is, based on John 15, 26 and 27, who would testify to the identity of Jesus after he was gone? The Holy Spirit and the disciples. Leaders, if you feel like you want to just make a statement of that, if it just seems too sim simple, you know, based on what's going on in the group and how ladies are talking, or you can ask a, the question. But I have reiterated it in the comments below, which you also need to be a transition to the question at the top of page 65. The Holy Spirit testifies about Jesus through us, and we testify about Jesus through the Holy Spirit working in us. And I'm not talking in circles, but this is the intimacy of our relationship with him and the indwelling Holy Spirit where he's working and he's using us. And on the outside, it looks like it's what we're doing. Uh, another summary here in the middle of that italicized paragraph, we bear fruit as the life of the vine flows through us. So um, there's a different illustration now that we're going to look at at the top of page 65, but it's all saying the same thing about the Holy Spirit. So ask, according to John 4, 10 through 14, what is the gift of God that Jesus gives and what happens when you receive this gift? So what's the gift of God? It's the uh, living water. And what happens when you receive the gift? You never thirst again. The living water becomes a spring of water. One version said welling up to eternal life. I was having trouble with that word welling up. It's, I, other translations say that the living water springs up to eternal life. Or it's a fountain of eternal life. And I like those words better. Um, so basically, I'm now explaining this. Jesus gives the gift of eternal life. And he's illustrating this at eternal life as water, but we're going to see in the next passage something else. But can, do they understand the illustration of living water, a, becoming a spring of water, springing up to eternal life? And you may want to talk about the, that more after we get the next question answered. According to John 7, 37 through 39, what did Jesus offer and to what was he referring? So we got water again. He offered, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John, yay, says in verse 39, he spoke this referring to the Holy Spirit, whom those believing would receive. So... John makes it clear that the Holy Spirit is the water and the water of the Holy Spirit would flow through our lives. So then we look back again at the John 4 verses. 
The living water is the Holy Spirit uh, giving us life, regeneration, salvation, making us a new creation. And the living water, the Holy Spirit is a fountain to flow out of us. And the Holy Spirit works through us and communicates the truth of who Jesus is and who God is and, and the whole story. So you may need to talk about that, or maybe ladies just answer it and it sounds really clear as they answer it right off the bat. There is a summary statement at the end of that italicized paragraph. Living water springs up from the well of the Spirit and flows out through our lives to quench the thirsts of dying souls. Now, the next question is, with whom will the disciples be sharing this testimony and living water? And what will happen when they do it? I have several notes here. So from John 15, 16 and 17. Um, they will bear fruit and love one another. That's great. From verses 18 through 21. The world will receive our testimony of Jesus. They'll hear it. They'll see it. But it also says they'll hate us for his namesake. And in chapter 16, verse 2, the, Jesus said the Jews would put the disciples out of the synagogue. Um, so there's a lot of action going on as the Holy Spirit is living through and working through, doing good works through the disciples and us. I wrote a summary. Um, the disciples would share with each other, with the world, with the Jews, and some would believe them and some would persecute them. I didn't highlight anything in the next two italicized paragraphs, but I think that it would be good if someone would read, ask someone in the group to read the statement in the box, and then that's going to set us up for the question at the bottom of the page. There is a responsibility resting on all Christians to bear their witness to the facts of saving grace. They cannot evade this. But the really significant witness is that of the Holy Spirit. For he alone can bring home to the hearts of men the truth and the significance of all this. And it's that last statement. The Holy Spirit is doing the work. He does it through us. We open our mouths. We look like we're doing something. But the Holy Spirit's doing the work through us. And he's doing the work on the other people and there's more to come about that in later lessons but at the bottom of page 65 let's talk about what this looks like in our own lives so don't call on anybody specifically for this but read the question and wait for it what do you need to trust the holy spirit to do in and through you and be specific so wait and if they're really quiet and just don't seem to want to say anything, you can offer offer one little thing. Say, I'll share something and then somebody else can share. Here's my answer. Um, I said, um, I need to trust the Holy Spirit to move in me, make me courageous, and um, move in me to make me yield to his works of love, labors of love, that agape, unconditional love, 
sacrificial love, unselfish love, make me humble, put the right words in my mouth at the right time, um, enable me to do what he wants me to do. Love is a key word that comes up, so I'm um, tuning into that also through these lessons. Turning the page after a little discussion, the top of page 66, there's a statement, but we're let's look at let's look at a few more important things from Jesus' message at this point. But you don't need to read any of the highlights. There's not anything that easily makes sense to just point out like highlighted phrases or words. We have a summary of what we have highlighted in the um, questions below. So go to the questions, summary questions, where it says, please notice some facts which give evidence of our triune God. He is three in one. So just ask the questions and let anybody answer. Who sent Jesus? The Father. Who sent the Holy Spirit? In this passage, Jesus says he sent him from the Father. So we go to the next question. The Holy Spirit proceeds from whom? The Father. And to whom did Jesus say he was going? To the Father. And then just, just keep going and ask the next question. What was the advantage to us of Jesus going away? Well, he sent the Spirit. Because he went away and he is absent from being present on the earth, his absence now, oh, yeah, he left. And because he left, he was, um, the plan was to send the spirit who would be in each one. For whatever reason that is beyond our finite mind's comprehension, when Jesus was on earth, the Spirit was not sent to indwell all believers. But with Jesus in heaven, now the Spirit has been sent to indwell all who believe in Jesus. These are facts, but when we're trying to like really get our mind wrapped around a why, like why did Jesus have to leave? Why couldn't we have Jesus and the Holy Spirit at the same time? And we can't answer that question. I don't think. Maybe somebody's got an answer, but <laughs> I don't know what it is. So, um, I'm going to move on to the next questions because we're looking at who the Holy Spirit is and truths about him. What are the truths about the Holy Spirit from these Old Testament verses? What did you learn from Genesis 1-2? It says, the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. Yes. What does that tell us about the Holy Spirit? I've got three points. One, he, the Holy Spirit, existed with God. This was at the beginning. So, he's eternal. He is the Spirit of God. He's God. And then the third thing I have is based on the phrase hovered over the waters. There is a presence of the Holy Spirit. Um, he is a being. He is 
And that's the only word I mean, we can say he's a person, but our definition of person might mess up our understanding if we say that. So he is a, a being uh, different from Jesus, the Son, and God, the Father. At the top of page 67, what do we learn from Job 33.4? And just let them answer these questions. You don't need to call on anybody particular. The Spirit of God made Job. So the Spirit of God created Job. And then the breath of the Almighty. Breath is another, it's a parallel way of referring to the Spirit. So the breath of the Almighty, it's like the Spirit of the Almighty, gave Job life. Um, and Job says, by the spirit of the, by the breath of the Almighty, um, I live. It seemed to be in a present tense. So you might say that the spirit sustains life. In Psalm 139.7, this one is more familiar. Um, it says, we cannot flee, cannot get away from the presence of the spirit. And then Isaiah 11, 1 and 2 this is about the character of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord rested on Jesus, and he is the spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, and fear of the Lord. So we see the, um, again, the character, the wisdom, the qualities. It's beautiful, isn't it? And then this statement, understanding the Trinity, is definitely beyond our full comprehension. Our God is three is in three persons. God is, is he's a triunity. God in three persons. Every time I try to say something that seems to be an explanation or a definition of the Trinity, I feel like, no, that is not right. Those words just don't cut it. So I thank God, I thank Jesus, I thank the Holy Spirit that they have explained this. I mean, they've communicated and revealed this deep, profound truth that can not even truly be expressed well. Um, it's truly a spiritual thing that I'm pondering. So now we have an incredible verse in Isaiah. Look at Isaiah 48, 16, where God the Son is speaking. Who does he say sent him? It says the Lord God and his Spirit sent Jesus. That verse may need to be looked at again, read out loud, um, or it may have, there may be a simple answer there, but that is a fascinating verse because you have all th all three persons of the trinity in one verse in the old testament right there so then uh just to reiterate summary god the father and god the spirit sent god the son to earth for a purpose god the son and god the father sent god the spirit to, for a purpose, to be in and with all who believe. You might pause and just think about that. 
Ask, what do you think about that? Is it, is it making sense even though it is hard to wrap our minds around? What we're seeing here are the roles and relationship of God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. But you don't have to spend much time on that, even though you could. <laughs> the next question is, what did Jesus want the disciples to do with this information that he was giving them? And leaders, you might just want to answer this and say, Jesus wanted the disciples to remember what he told them. And especially, remember this when everything gets rough. Remember, the Spirit is here with you, in you, to do your work, to do his work through you. And then at the end of this lesson, this is uh, summary, reflection, sharing. So if it, and depending on how ladies have shared so far during the lesson, you may not need to ask this, or there may be someone who's waiting for this particular question. So ask, what is something about the Holy Spirit that has been brought to your attention in this lesson that you need to remember? Because we're launching off of what Jesus wanted us to do. Remember, he has sent his Holy Spirit to do the work in us and work through us. So I uh, really loved the image of receiving the water of life, which then becomes a fountain of living, living water sprinkling out of me. And knowing, seeing, being reminded that the Holy Spirit is the water of life. So that's um, the end of these two lessons of the Holy Spirit and our mysterious trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And trusting that the Holy Spirit will do His work in us. We are not on our own. Hallelujah. So you leaders are not on your own as you work through, talk through these lessons. You are trusting the Holy Spirit to lead you and um, communicate and share through you. And thank you for your obedience to the Lord, to Jesus' command to teach and share what he has said and for letting the Holy Spirit work through you. That's all. Thank you.